Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today's episode is a standalone type episode about an African-American woman who played a particularly important role in California's political development, Mary Ellen Pleasant. For this episode, I will be relying on the fabulous research of the historian Dr. Lim In Hudson, who has done a lot to try to separate fact from fiction in the life of someone who has been mythologized in many ways. What is clear beyond the mythologizing is that Hudson most certainly was one of the most influential African Americans in California in the period that we're currently covering. First, she was wealthy, which of course was an anomaly in this time period. She engaged in business tactics that were typically only used by men, and specifically white men. She had enormous political clout, being referred perhaps a smidge hyperbolically as the mother of civil rights in California. Any one of these attributes would likely make her worth attention on this show, and I'm excited to bring you this episode that gives you a brief but detailed overview of Mary Ellen Pleasant's life and role in the development of California. Let's get started. Let's start with what we know about Pleasant's early life. According to her autobiography, she was born in August of 1814 in Pennsylvania, which effectively calls into question the notion, which was often repeated about her, that she was born a slave. There is some speculation that she was not being entirely truthful in the telling of her personal history, but there's no way to be sure either way. Pleasant was not able to receive a formal education and instead went to work as a servant on Nantucket Island for a woman named Mary Hussey. She worked in some kind of shop, we don't know what type, for Hussey, and in her autobiography, she plays up her early business acumen as if it was some kind of innate talent that she developed, describing people traveling far and wide to come to her shop to buy things from her. Later, she married a wealthy man sometime in the late 1830s or early 1840s who was actively involved in abolitionist politics and activities in the North. Their marriage, unfortunately, did not last long. In 1844, her first husband died and left her $15,000. Soon after, she met her second husband, John James Pleasant, where she acquired the surname. They were married three years after her husband's death. Like our previous protagonists, Mary and her husband went west in 1850, pulled by gold and pushed by the updated fugitive slave law that was passed in the Compromise of 1850 that was often used to kidnap African Americans and pull them into slavery. Her initial 10 years in the west were spent developing business and wealth first as a housekeeper and then as a business owner and real estate owner. Her first major foray into politics in California, and specifically fighting for rights for African Americans in the West, was in 1866, when she and her husband launched a lawsuit against the North and Mission Railroad Company for allegedly refusing to allow African Americans to board streetcars. While she won locally, receiving damages, she lost on appeal at the California Supreme Court. Ultimately, though, the victory was in drawing attention to the issue as the newspapers covered her lawsuit in detail. After she lost her court case, she made a transition from employee to landlord, 
opening a boarding house on 920 Washington Street in San Francisco. She chose the location of her boarding house strategically. It was adjacent to all the major civic and cultural institutions in the city, including City Hall, Opera, courts, banks, and many other important institutions. She designed the amenities to appeal specifically to the upper crest of the city, offering fine food and wine. Accordingly, some of the most influential people either dined or stayed at her inn. For example, one of these patrons was Newton Booth, who was elected as governor of California and who was both an admirer and a patron of her establishment, where he himself had made important political contacts and connections. Naturally, the growth and influence of her business led to wealth. She was able to gather important financial information from many of her clients at her establishment. Much of the information was inside knowledge and actionable. In addition, huge profits were coming through the vast mining operations in Nevada that Pleasant had invested in. She made an effort to get cozy with some of the banking officials as well, working in the San Francisco Stock Exchange, specifically a man named Thomas Bell, who was the founder of the Bank of California. Originally from Scotland, Bell immigrated to Chile when he was 18, working as a clerk in the country's largest commission house. He then moved to Tepic, Mexico, where he joined a new banking and commission business. Following the scent of gold, Bell came to California in the 1850s and set up shop to great financial success. With her partnership with Bell and other enterprises, Pleasant accumulated vast wealth that she, was used to, that she used to invest in commodities and more real estate. This wealth propelled her into a position that was uncommon for African Americans during this time. Money in hand, Pleasant went to work on building herself a mansion on the corner of Octavian Bush, which today has been replaced, her home was tragically demolished in 1928, to a massive Planned Parenthood clinic. The home was enormous and included 10 rooms and spanned nearly two city blocks. It was built in partnership with her business ally, Thomas Bell, who moved in with Pleasant after the completion. Given both of their public personas and importance to the city, as well as beliefs about interracial relationships, the press had a field day with gossip about them and their home, referring to the mansion as the House of Mystery. Either to quell the speculation and gossip, or for other reasons like love perhaps, Bell married Teresa Klingen, an associate of Pleasance. Teresa moved into the House of Mystery and proceeded to have children with Belle. Outsiders to this relationship in this home, whose racial views of the world couldn't posit a relationship of equals when there was a white couple living with a black woman, believed that she had effectively become the mammy or servant of the couple, which perhaps was a useful cloak for Pleasant to draw and ward off speculation and criticism of their unconventional living arrangement. Pleasant continued to operate as the master of the house, though, and the city for that matter, riding around town in her carriage and spending exorbitant amounts of money on decor for her home. Pleasant was thrust back into the direct spotlight of the media and the city in the context of a divorce case. 
Sarah Althea Hill, then married to William Sharon, sued her husband for divorce. Mr. Sharon came west with the gold rush, but moved into the banking world, having worked with Bell and the Bank of California. Ever ambitious, Sharon had kept accumulating wealth. When one of his partners at the Bank of California, William Ralston, faced financial difficulty, Sharon was there to collect, acquiring the famous Palace Hotel and the Ralston Hall. Like many powerful men, Sharon enjoyed activities outside of his marriage, but show someone who would be his demise. Sarah Althea Hill was born in Missouri to a prominent attorney. When her parents died, she received a sizable inheritance. Her and her brother came west in 1871, where they lived like socialites in the city of San Francisco. Hill's first public affair was with Reuben H. Lloyd, who was one of those pioneer lawyers in the early days of San Francisco. Beyond law, Lloyd was also the park commissioner for Golden Gate Park. In fact, he had a lake named after him, which is known as Lloyd Lake or also Mirror Lake. Lloyd and Hill were romantically involved, and when Lloyd tried to break it off, probably worried about public perception, Hill tried to poison herself and subsequently had to have her stomach pumped. Just a few months later, Hill met Sharon, and they began their affair. And I will use that term specifically here because Sharon was, in fact, married. Sharon effectively kept her on retainer by giving her a monthly allowance as well as a posh residence at the Palace Hotel. Much like her previous beau, Sharon decided he wanted to end the relationship soon after it began and attempted to evict Hill from her room at the hotel by literally taking the door off of the hinges and ripping up the carpets in her room. Pretty aggro, if you ask me. And finally, he decided that his only thing he could do now was to pay her off, a sum in the six-figure range in modern dollars. Hill was fine with the payoff until Sharon began to see another woman. In an effort to spite Sharon, she claimed that they were, in fact, married, leading us back to the court case and Pleasant. In the court proceedings, Pleasant stated that she had, in fact, seen the marriage certificate. In an effort to invalidate her testimony, the defense team tried to associate Pleasant with certain ideas and stereotypes about voodoo and the occult in African Americans arguing that perhaps Pleasant, or one of her associates, cast a charm or spell on a pair of Sharon's socks. The discrediting of Pleasant continued throughout the trial. Newspapers getting involved, as well as the defense team, working hard to find some way to divert attention from the key hard evidence in Pleasant's testimony, her claim to have seen the document that would settle the case. Ultimately, in spite of the noise around the trial, the judge determined that Hill and Sharon were, in fact, legally married and settled in her favor, making Sharon pay her a monthly sum as well as the cost of legal fees she had accrued in the course of the trial. Hill, that same year, moved on to her next suitor, an old friend of ours from a previous episode, David S. Terry, who was the man that killed David S. Broderick in that famous duel. Hill and Terry now the Terrys, produced what appeared to be a forged will that essentially left Hill a majority of the estate of Sharon, who died shortly after the trial. The Terrys brought their document to a court, 
to have it verified so they can in fact become the inheritors of the state. However, the judge disagreed. He announced that he believed this document was a forgery. As this verdict was being announced in court, Hill tried to pull a handgun out of her purse and shoot the judge. While Hill was being subdued, David S. Terry came to her fence with a bowie knife. Husband and wife were both arrested and forced to serve time for their offense. A year later, after Terry and Hill were both out of jail, Terry and the judge met again on a train ride to San Francisco and at a stop in Lathrop, California, which is just east of the Bay Area in the Central Valley. Terry apparently approached Field and slapped him in the face and then reached in his breast pocket for what Field's bodyguard feared was a gun. His bodyguard drew his own weapon and shot Terry dead. After this event, and probably in culmination of all the previous events, Hill descended into a state of mental duress and was committed to a mental institution in Stockton, California, where she spent the final 45 years of her life. After the Sharon trial and the resulting debacle and publicity, Pleasant's relationship with Thomas Bell worsened, likely as a result of all the attention that was lobbed at her and his clear association with her by sharing a residence. Thomas Bell ultimately died in 1892, leaving Pleasant with a possibly seething widow and children. The eldest of those children, Fred, petitioned the courts to remove Teresa, Thomas Bell's wife, as the legal guardian and manager of the estate, arguing that Pleasant was controlling and directing her, leaning in again to this narrative of magic and charms. This lawsuit brought Pleasant back into the public eye, with her face on the front page of most newspapers in the city, attached to words again like voodoo and spells. All of the attention and hostility over the home on Octavia Street forced Pleasant, who was getting along in her years, to relocate to a cottage south of San Francisco, where she spent the final five years of her life. Many local newspapers used this opportunity to denigrate her, claiming that she had become a farmer and spent her days tending to her farm animals. Ultimately, Pleasant died in 1904 at the age of 89 years old. Over the course of her lifetime, Pleasant had accumulated vast wealth in real estate. Some of it held jointly with white men, who were the ones that it was socially acceptable to have that much money. But conservatively, if we estimate, she was at least a millionaire, if not in the tens of millions. Pleasant certainly was uncommon in her wealth for a woman and much more for an African-American woman in this time period. When she was helping powerful white men or posturing herself in the role of servant or helper, they were glad to support her. But when she challenged them or put herself in a position to challenge authority, the support evaporated, as in the Sharon case. Mary Ellen's pleasant work on the streetcar case, given the time and sentiments during the U.S. in the Jim Crow era, put her squarely ahead of her time in fighting for equality in public services. She also displayed an amazing knack to use racial stereotypes like the concept of a mammy to serve her ends. This is just a brief snippet into her life, and I would encourage you all to read Hudson's book on this inly fascinating woman. We'll see you next time.